You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Bible for Normal People, and our topic today is reading the Bible in times of crisis. And we wanted to just make mention here at the front, you know, we do talk about loss of children in the Bible and in the early church, just to be sensitive to anyone as as far as what you're going to be hearing. And we're talking with Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Yale University, uh, Maria Dorfler. Yeah, we don't just talk about that. It actually is a bigger conversation about how we read our Bible. Yeah, and that's what's really was very fascinating and very apropos for our podcast to talk about how Christians in the early centuries used certain texts in the Bible that talk about children who die. And it's actually, a, um, you know, this, this is, could be a very hard topic for people to listen to, and we understand that, but the real focus of this is on hermeneutics. It's on the nature of biblical interpretation. It's it's what people do all the time with their Bible. This is just one example of people doing that very thing, engaging the Bible creatively, looking for little gaps and little ends uh, so they can commune with God at a time of crisis for themselves. And I think Everybody who's read the Bible has done that on some level. Yeah, that's well put. All right, well, let's jump into this conversation then and and hear from Maria. Every child who passes is, in a sense, being offered up by the parents to God, not because the parents, ideally, of course, have a hand in the killing of the child, but because the parents must, on some level, assent to disbereavement and must continue to put their faith in the divine regardless. Let's talk microdosing, as you'd expect from a Bible podcast. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And you know, microdose gummies are good for so many things like anxiety, workflow, sleeping, and stuff like that. I mean, Jared, we've had people in our lives that have benefited from this too, not just us. Yeah, I have a family member who regularly uses microdosing for more creative, like recreational time, a time they journal every night and it's sort of a way to unwind and do the journaling. And that's worked really well for them. Our yeah. producer. Our producer. It's made such a difference, folks. I can't even tell you that. So anyway, <laughs> and for me as well, uh, microdose gummies help me a lot with anxiety and sleep and just stopping that racing mind at night. And it helps tremendously. I get a good night's sleep. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. But welcome, Maria, to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We, ha- we have a pretty nerdy topic today, but I think it's going to be really relevant to how we think about the Bible in, in a bigger picture. But let's start with this really nuanced understanding of the idea of looking at narratives in the Bible of of child death, and then how the early church would have read 
those narratives for their own time and place. So, maybe just start us off with how would you, how did you even come to the idea that this would be something to look at uh, and have some importance? Thanks, Jared. This is really, not only is it a nerdy topic, but you know, as someone who's been living with this topic, and you get excited about your research and you want to talk about it. And, you know, you're sitting in a restaurant and, you know, suddenly you notice that three tables away, people are quietly inching away from you because you're talking about (laughs) childhood mortality and antiquity. uh, And it's just off-putting. So, you know, the question of how I came to it is, as these things tend to go, a little bit of a multi-part thing. On the one hand, it's really an expression of my broader interest as a student of early Christianity. I sometimes describe myself as a historian of exegesis as an extreme sport. Now, (laughs) what I mean by that is that I'm really interested in how individuals and how communities read their authoritative texts, regardless of what those texts are. Sometimes they're law, sometimes they're philosophy, a lot of times they're scripture, and particularly how they read those texts in times of crisis. So these crises can be communal or they can be extremely personal. And now when it comes to the death of children, this project obviously falls a little bit more into the personal end of that category. But I don't want to understate how important children in antiquity, as indeed today, uh, also were for communities. The death of a child has this ripple effect through the community. For example, I was just recently looking at one funerary hymn that comes to us from the 8th century, and it describes the death of a child as just the removal of that central peg of a tent that is being pulled out and everything around it collapses. So in that sense, it kind of fits into the broader scheme of what I'm interested in. Um, But uh, I will also say that the first impetus for beginning to look at this came to me when I was doing some training in an ancient language known as Syriac. Um, Really, it's just uh, a further development of Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke. This is a homily from the 6th century, and it focused specifically on children that had died. I should tell you right away the texts that specifically deal with this topic are actually pretty rare in antiquity. But I'm reading along and I'm reading along and I look up and my my immediate impression is like, wait, they can't actually be saying this. That's usually how research topics come to me when I read something and I'm just going, whoa, that's just wrong. Or, whoa, that's totally surprising. So in this particular instance, I had always thought about death of children in late antiquity as something that was pretty well dealt with by the time that uh, Augustine, um, big important 5th century North African dude, came around, um, who says that, you know, to address the potential of uh, what happens to children after death, you simply need to baptize them uh, as early as possible. But what I was seeing in these other sources was instead an appreciation of children, uh, regardless of their baptism, as pure, as unspoiled, as, you know, a category of people that do not need to go through any after-death sort of challenges, whether it's purgatory, whether it's a period of waiting for the last judgment, but they immediately pass into the presence of Jesus, as would be expected of martyrs in that period. So finding material that uh, really pushed against the grain of what I, big quotation marks, sort of knew um, was happening in late antiquity was uh, another thing that sort of nudged me into that direction. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's so much happening uh, with your thought process there, Maria. And uh, one thing that you said that struck me was, even at the very beginning, reading texts in times of crisis and just to take a step back from all this, um, 
you know, the argument has been made, I think it's a sound argument, that the Bible itself, especially the Hebrew Scriptures, arose because of crisis, because of the Babylonian captivity, and and we, we tend to want to commune with God when things aren't going well, both on the personal level and on the corporate level. And this is just one example, I guess, one, one um, rather fine-tuned example of that I would even say common religious phenomenon. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's also what makes scripture such a tremendous resource for thinking about these crisis situations. Um, again, whether they're personal or whether they're communal. All right. So we're, we're going to get into how these representatives of the early Christian church maybe handled some of these stories in the Bible. But let's, let's take a few minutes and sit with some of these stories and just try to understand what might have motivated these early interpreters. And, I mean, do you have one or two that are sort of your go-to favorite texts about uh, children dying in the Bible? Oh, yeah. Well, doesn't everybody have favorite texts of children dying in the Bible? Um, <laughs> I was afraid sorry, you were Peter. going to um, say <laughs> I was going to say favorite, Pete. I don't know if that would have been the word I would have used. Okay. what What is a compelling example? Let's not use favorite. What's a compelling example? Okay, so I am going to split my vote on this, and I'm going to go with one text that is uh, super well-known, and another text that people tend to stay away from. It's not generally featured in lectionaries, it doesn't really get preached on, etc. But at the same time, these are two texts that are very frequently sort of handled in tandem with one another in antiquity, which is interesting uh, in its own right. So, the first text, the one that is perhaps the less known of the two, is the story of Jephthah's daughter. And of course, this uh, immediately shows up in the title of my book, it's an absolutely compelling narrative that comes to us from the book of Judges 11. And in antiquity, that frequently gets paired with a story that's really, really well known, uh, at least in a contemporary setting. And that's the story of the binding of Isaac, or the Hebrew word that's frequently used for that story is the Akedah. That shows up in Genesis 22. So, take your pick. Where do you want to begin? Let's begin with Jephthah's daughter, because it's such an uplifting story. That was sarcasm, people, by the way. I don't mean that at all. So, go ahead, Maria. Let's talk about Jephthah's daughter first. I can tell Pete is preparing us for the warm and fuzzy stories. <laughs> so, um, this, is, uh, this comes to us from uh, the book of Judges 11, uh, chapter 11. And if you've spent any kind of quality time with the book of Judges, one of the things that uh, you notice is that uh, the protagonists and the heroes, with maybe a couple of exceptions— are not really the people for whom you would find yourself generally rooting. And one of those is Jephthah, who is one of the judges of Israel, that is to say he's an important military leader. He's particularly important in fighting off the Ammonites. And in the middle of battle, Jephthah makes a deal with God. And uh, the deal amounts something like this, and Jephthah is setting the terms of this deal, although there's some very interesting language surrounding the Spirit of God coming upon Jephthah uh, as he's making that particular bargain. We would have to get seriously into the history of translation uh, if we wanted to unpack that, so I'm just totally going to delicately sideline that here. Um, so, Jephthah uh, makes this bargain with God, and it's basically, if I triumph in battle, if the Israelites are in fact successful, when I get home, 
the first thing, the first living thing that approaches me as I get home, I am going to sacrifice to you. Now, this is a really weird vow to make, um, and in fact, this is something that all interpreters, whether the rabbis, ancient Christians, sort of notice about it, because realistically speaking, what was Jephthah expecting uh, at this point in time? And what are the chances that this is something that would be, you know, kosher and pleasing to God? Suffice it to say, however, uh, Jephthah triumphs in battle. After a sense, you might argue that the bargain is accepted. And then Jephthah returns home, and the first living thing that approaches him is his only daughter. Um, and that it truly is Jephthah's only child uh, is something that a lot of ancient sources really uh, sort of lean into. In fact, the term that's being used for that, uh, particularly in um, Syriac, is the same word that's being used for um, Jesus in the sense that uh, she is the only begotten uh, daughter in that sense. And she approaches Jephthah, um, and uh, he immediately, he rends his clothes, he expresses dismay, and uh, he says effectively, what am I going to do? Of course, the answer turns out to be, because this is the book of Judges, and we're, as Pete says, in a profoundly encouraging, uh, uplifting story, that um, Jephthah ultimately goes through with the sacrifice of his daughter. His daughter assents to the sacrifice, um, asks beforehand to be given some time to go into the mountains um, with um, the other young women uh, in order to mourn her virginity, but she ultimately returns and um, she is at least in most interpretations, ultimately sacrificed. There is, um, there is some um, leeway in how people have read the conclusion of that particular story, but the overwhelming number of witnesses here proceed on the assumption that she does, in fact, die. Yeah. Um, why, why do you think, I mean, we were um, talking earlier about some of, some of the gaps and tensions and some of these stories that make them so interesting, but why would Jephthah have even lamented? He must have known it wasn't going to be a kosher item coming out of his house that he could sacrifice acceptably to Yahweh. He must have known it was going to be a human being coming out and likely his daughter. But he just registers shock at that. And that's always surprised me about that story. Hmm. You know, I think at least the overwhelming assumption on the part of interpreters, regardless of their religious tradition, is that Jephthah did not know and perhaps could not have expected. Um, in fact, you know, in the rabbinic tradition, there is frequently the assumption that uh, what makes this vow particularly offensive is that, you know, it, Jephthah was expecting that a dog would be coming um, to meet him um, uh, in this particular setting. But, um, you know, if we take the text uh, at its face value, which, you know, I think we should, um, this really is a shock and this is a source of of tremendous grief for Jephthah mm. um, at this point in time. Um, and it is something that later interpreters read with absolute horror, and particularly in the Christian tradition, by and large, um, actually, I should say, both in the Christian and the Jewish tradition, by and large, with a great deal of condemnation for Jephthah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in some ways, though, that whether whether it's a surprise and is unexpected or not, 
for me, it seems to also that the answer to that also hinges whether I would view him as a as a sympathetic figure or not. In in some ways, there is this passivity to it where this is happening to him rather than him being the the agent who basically made a deal to sacrifice his daughter to win a war and you know is there is there a sense whenever we're thinking i'm also thinking ahead in terms of how in the world would this have been seen by early christians as a as a text to to talk about in the death of of someone else's child I wonder if that plays into it at all. Yeah, um, you know, it's, uh, of course, Christian, early Christian interpreters in particular, and in fact, Christian interpreters of any era, have that additional difficulty that Jephthah is someone who features in the Epistle to the Hebrews, in the so-called Hall of Faith, you know, uh, where you have the beautiful recitation of, by faith, uh, Abraham when called to go to a place, etc., etc. And there shows up Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and in due course, there shows up Jephthah. And in that sense, uh, it very much looks like uh, the author of Hebrews is placing a stamp of approval upon um, Jephthah's actions uh, in this particular setting. So, this is a constraint, and um, for ancient authors who, by and large, read the Bible holistically, and I don't mean to say that they read it naively, um, they're very much aware that um, different books uh, are, uh, they, they do the text-critical thing exceedingly well, but there nevertheless is an assumption that the text is animated by the same Holy Spirit and that every part of it can indeed be made useful for understanding uh, every other part. So, in that sense, um, Hebrews 11 places a certain constraint on Christian responses there, too. Um, and there's very few authors who are actually prepared to just come out and say, well, you know, once Jephthah saw his daughter approaching, he really should have just relented uh, and tried to figure out another way in order to absolve himself of that particular vow. That's by and large not the actual um, Christian storyline with this. There are many Christian authors who um, see this uh, as a warning, a cautionary tale about how you should not make rash vows, because guess what might happen to you if you make a rash vow uh, along those lines? Um, and then there are a few who, who particularly focus their condemnation, not upon the vow so much, but precisely on that emotional response, Jared, that you called out, that in some ways makes Jephthah seem sympathetic to us. But on the other hand, if you contrast that with the response of Abraham to being instructed to kill Isaac, his son, his only son, his beloved son, not, of course, his only son, his only son was Sarah, but uh, to quote the text here for you, Abraham shows no emotional response to this. From this, some ancient authors assumed that if Jephthah too had appropriately constrained his emotions here, Jephthah too, God too, would have ultimately not made Jephthah go through with his sacrifice, but because there was no concomitant trust in God, etc., etc. So, it's a complicated text with which a lot of early Christian writers wrestle, even quite aside from the question uh, of the death of children. That being said, in a number of places, it shows up, and precisely, I think, because of its pairing with the story of the binding of Isaac. Um, 
because so many ancient authors recognize a similar narrative in the two stories. Um, it shows up frequently when it comes to um, the death of children or, for that matter, the sacrifice of children in other ways. For example, one very famous 4th century author um, is writing about how his mother, heavy quotation marks, sacrificed him to a monastic, to a clerical vocation, and describes the sacrifice his mother made in this instance as akin to the sacrifice of Abraham, akin to the sacrifice of Jephthah. Probably the major locus for thinking about how Jephthah and Jephthah's grief can ultimately become an occasion for thinking about parental grief more generally is in the context of a long and very beautiful, although of course in many regards very troubling, interpretation of the story that comes to us from a 6th century verse homily. A verse homily is exactly what it sounds like. That is to say, it is a homily, except it is composed in verse. And certain parts of ancient Christianity particularly emphasize verse as the medium through which they do public theology, whether that's in the form of a homily or in the form of a hymn. And so in this, there's a lengthy um, discussion of the entire backdrop, but even more so of the suffering that Jephthah undergoes. And particularly the tension that Jephthah experiences between, on the one hand, the love of God, the desire to fulfill the vow, and on the other hand, the natural love that he as a father feels for his daughter. This is this tension that we see a lot in ancient Christian sources that seek to deal with the death of children. On the one hand, the expectation that it is completely natural and indeed, uh, as this particular author suggests, commendable that there is the grief for the child. And then on the other hand, there's a sense that uh, Every child who passes is, in a sense, being offered up by the parents to God, not because the parents, ideally, of course, have a hand in the killing of the child, but because the parents must, on some level, assent to this bereavement and must continue to put their faith in the divine, regardless. So, the, the text like Jephthah's uh, daughter, a text like that is read Perhaps I mean, I don't want to overstate, but perhaps looking for or teasing out potentialities for uh, early Christians who are bereaved to, to connect their own experience with something the Bible is saying. Yes, I think you're absolutely right, Pete. This is what I sometimes talk about uh, in terms of there being a pedagogy of emotions, in other words, Scripture provides starting points for homilists, for people who write hymns, for people who write letters of consolation, to begin to think about both what makes for a desirable emotional landscape in a Christian, of course, something with which, you know, we see engagement uh, from the earliest epistles onward. And these stories provide a place where simply by being part of a community that worships together, Christians can be taught by emulation and by participation in these stories 
how to approach their own emotions. Mm-hmm. There's a whole variety of different kinds of emotional pedagogies to different ends. Some of them are very harsh. Um, some of them, are, and particularly the more elite material, the more philosophically inclined material, where we see particularly strong influences from the philosophical school of the Stoics, um, is very emphatic on not showing grief and at all points acquainting oneself with the extreme ephemerality of life. Mm -hmm. But overwhelmingly, those emotional pedagogies seek to combine the thread of that with the recognition that grief is natural and grief is something that ought to take place within the context of the Christian community. It is a joint exercise. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community— You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. I was worried about talking about fast-growing trees on here because I'm not a green thumb, but then I realized that probably makes me the perfect candidate to be able to talk about this. I loved the website. It was so easy. It was searchable by region. And then the experts who are there to help you make the decisions lowers the anxiety around something I don't typically know a lot about, but it was a really good experience. This spring, they have the best deals online up to half off on selected plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So I wanted to maybe talk a little bit more about, you use the phrase emotional pedagogy, which may be new for for some people, but in my mind, I'm, I can't separate it from the idea that there was a, an understanding that we needed to grieve these things. The Bible doesn't explicitly say, it's not a, a psychology textbook, it's not saying, you know, here are the five 
levels of grief and five stages of grief and that sort of thing. But on, on some almost extra biblical level, we understand the need to grieve. And so, when we look then at the Bible, we, we map that intuition or that understanding communally onto the text and we bring it into that process. Is that, am I, am I overstating that? How would you, how would you maybe in your own words talk about this emotional pedagogy? Uh, no, Jared, I don't think you're overstating this at all. I think that's a very helpful way of thinking about it. One of the things that ancient Christian readers are exceedingly astute at is taking the stories that they find in Scripture which, incidentally, our authors know by and large much, much, much better than I ever will. I don't want to speak for you much, much, much better than the overwhelming majority of contemporary thinkers and writers on these topics ever will. But they take the story seriously to the point where they recognize the silences. And so, when you look at a story like Genesis 22, that is the binding of Isaac, it's, it's quite famous, but the essential gist of it is that uh, Abraham and Sarah, having had uh, a son together at a very, very mature age, uh, against all hopes that they would ever have a child together, that son grows up and uh, the voice of God comes to Abraham that um, says, um, take your son and uh, take your son on this mountain about three days' journey from here and uh, sacrifice him to me. Of course, in due course, this is a story that has a happy ending. I don't want to leave anybody here uh, teetering at the edge of their seats. That is to say, Abraham uh, ascends to the sacrifice, takes uh, Isaac, his son, up the mountain. And uh, um, at the moment where Abraham is prepared to um, cut his son's throat, uh, there's an angel that stops Abraham. And uh, um, there is a ram that's caught in a thicket nearby that is being substituted for Isaac. And the verdict ultimately that comes from God is that um, God now knows the faith uh, of Abraham. But uh, one of the things that, you know, again, for, for many people, this is a very familiar story. And so, we don't worry too much about the empty spaces. But for ancient readers, one of the uh, uh, real challenges that this raised is that if we think of Isaac as a young child in this particular context, such that, you know, his father uh, can take him uh, on a journey, what is happening with Isaac's mother in the middle <laughs> of all this? Right. And it's interesting because in Genesis 22, Sarah does not show up. And I, I have to give a shout out to the wonderful scholar of uh, Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament, Phyllis Tribble, who has talked extensively about precisely this text and in fact calls it the sacrifice of Sarah. But so ancient writers would look at this text and just go, Wait, how can Abraham get away with this? You know, that there is, there is a, a loving mother and he's just absconding with the child uh, for nefarious purposes. Um, this is not something that I think we see raised significantly in interpretations of this text uh, in a contemporary venue. But in antiquity, that part of the story is absolutely ubiquitous, where then Abraham has to make a grueling decision. Do I tell my wife? Do I tell the mother of this child what has been asked of me? Uh, if I'm not going to tell her, um, 
Why not? And how am I going to sneak the child away? And Sarah actually shows up in a lot of these narratives, a lot of interpretations of Genesis 22. Um, Sometimes she's actually written into the story. Sometimes she appears as sort of this figment of Abraham's imagination. But in all these places, Sarah is there to express the grief and the horror that one would expect a parent to feel when instructed by God to go and take a child and kill that child uh, as a sacrifice for that God. So, in these places, by noticing these silences, um, by thinking about how a character, a real character, would have responded, the writers are not reading into the text, but creating a text that is evocative um, for the audience and that for the community is a way of giving voice Mm. to the challenges that the community uh, is experiencing, both in grappling with the text and in their own lives. So, Sarah is, maybe to put it another way and tell me if this is fair or not, Sarah is carrying the emotional burden of that story where Abraham is not, and that is the means by which people who have lost children can maybe connect with that story um, on a deep level. I think that's right. And of course, you know, uh, one of the reasons perhaps for us to begin with the story of Jephthah is because there we see a grieving, and in many interpretations, a deeply grieving father. Many of these stories parcel grief out as something that is proper to women. And that's, of course, a gendered approach to emotions that's significant in antiquity in many regards. This is part of the heritage of antiquity that we are preserving in many families Mm -hmm. today as well. But, um, yeah, Sarah becomes this... Sarah becomes a voice for parents. And there's some truly beautiful ancient expositions of this. In one instance, uh, when Abraham returns from the mountain uh, and um, Sarah um, receives her son back, because the general assumption is that Sarah has intuited that something horrible is in the process of happening. And when Sarah sees her son again, uh, her response is, from this day forward, you will be known as Sarah's son. You will be known as the child of the pyre. And uh, there is the assumption, um, the statement that, in fact, um, God has honored Abraham's faithfulness but has also honored Sarah's love and care for her child, and as a result has returned that child to her. Now, in Christian discourses, uh, of course, the possibility of receiving one's child back, even when that child has passed away, is something that is frequently sort of moved into the realm of resurrection discourses. Um, but um, um, here we're really seeing that sort of logic of loss and uh, uh, the celebration of return acted out uh, with biblical character. Mm-hmm. Well, um, okay, I would be very upset with myself if I didn't ask you to talk about this other example that um, my students ask about all the time, and that's Job and uh, the loss of his children and his response to that. So, maybe can you unpack that story a little bit and then get into how maybe that story was appropriated by grieving parents. 
Thanks, Pete. Uh, I'm so happy your students are asking you about this. Uh, just this past semester, I was reading a significant part of the book of Job with my students, and a lot of my students just sort of glossed right over this. Mm. So, Job, of course, has famously uh, entered common parlance as this example of patient enduring of suffering. Job, as you know, sort of becomes the... Um, the central focus of a wager between God and a figure that is in the Hebrew hasatan, that is to say, the adversary. I'm going to totally leave that to you to unpack the uh, connections between that figure and uh, the figure of Satan as he becomes known in Christian discourse. I'm going to pass right by that. Thank you. Anytime. I just say that ultimately, God is bragging on Job. Have you seen my servant Job? He is awesome. And Hasatan says, well, uh, sure, yes. I mean, you know, you're inundating him with riches. You've given him everything he could possibly want. God returns and says, well, you can test him. And what then follows is a series of trials that begin with the removal of Job's possession, his herds, the animals he has, the servants or slaves that he owns. It ultimately culminates in Job being stricken with boils head to toe. But in between there sits an element that uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, actually gets passed over very rapidly, but uh, that for a lot of interpreters really becomes the crux of understanding Job's suffering as well as Job's uh, effort to ultimately get a hearing with God. Because as those of you who are familiar with the book know, Job never accedes to having done anything to merit the punishments that he is receiving. So, that piece in the center of all this is that Job's ten children, who were in the habit of uh, dining with one another, they're very loving kids, they are killed as they're gathering at the home of the eldest son. The roof caves in and uh, they are crushed uh, under the building there. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Within the context of the book of Job, this is a story that finds a resolution of sorts. That is to say, at the end, uh, in the final chapter, God makes restitution and gives Job twice over all the things that he has lost. Interestingly, there is not a twofold return of the children, but he does get 10 new children. The question, of course, arises, why not 20 new children? And uh, some interpreters say, well, because, you know, the first 10 are, in fact, preserved in heaven. That's, a, uh, that's just a little side note, mm -hmm. less about the ways in which this story is being deployed. So, this is something that uh, for ancient interpreters becomes a really key vignette for talking about parental suffering and parental bereavement. And, um, you know, there's a couple of things that really lend themselves to this. On the one hand, 
Here we have not just the death of one child, but multiple deaths. This is something that's relatively common in antiquity. We have letters from people to their spiritual authorities, whether they're rabbis or whether they're bishops, just writing about having lost not just one child, but in swift succession, a whole number of children. And on the other hand, it's that uh, Job, of course, he's always known as the righteous Gentile. In other words, he is kind of an everyday sort of guy. I mean, he is sure he is particularly righteous and particularly stand-up, but he's a married man. He is wealthy. He has children. He is, in other words, a better model in some ways for what family life and the losses that family life can involve for a lot of the lay people uh, in early Christian communities. And so in these places, we see Job in a variety of guises. One of the places where he shows up is in a uh, funerary oration that uh, Gregory of Nyssa, who is a really important 4th century bishop and writer, preaches for the funeral of the daughter of a Roman emperor, in which instance our homilist just takes the story and uses it to expound the experience of of parental grief, but also how ultimately that particular grief ought to be dealt with, which is to say that Job, at least in the context of the book of Job, accepts this uh, as ultimately something that is of God, even if it is something that is unintelligible for him, uh, and even if it is something that is deeply and profoundly unwelcome. There are, of course, also other expositions of this particular narrative that are perhaps a little less, shall we say, accommodationist. I'm always particularly struck by a Greek homily that talks about Job not only as being struck down in mourning for his children, but in fact has Job go to the house that has collapsed and with his own two hands begin digging in the dirt. And in the dirt, he uncovers not just the bodies of his children, but the body parts of the children. This is, in many regards, really a quite gruesome sort of account. And Job begins sort of the, the grieving labor of, you know, um, figuring out which body parts belong to which child. And in a sense, putting the children back together in the midst of all his mourning. This is a Job that looks in many regards much less stoic than the biblical Job as we encounter him in the Old Testament or as we encounter him in a lot of other expositions. But it nevertheless gives you a glimpse into how this potential for developing the narratives uh, of the Old Testament for communities, uh, how that really, how that can flower, even in a story where, you know, it, it, in Job 1, there's, you know, a line and a half that's ultimately dedicated to the death and children uh, and to Job's response thereto. But in these expositions, they become opportunities to really speak to, uh, to parental grief. Yes, because what broke the the straw that broke the camel's back for Job was not the loss of his children, but his own physical pain. At that point, he said, "I wish I had never been born." And I'm thinking, as a parent, I would have said that a chapter earlier when when a roof fell on my children. So, so the story of Job again, and I say this positively, is being mined for 
potential ways of connecting with God. And I wonder, Jared, if you're thinking the same thing that I'm thinking here. Uh, we've had James Kugel on a couple of times on the podcast. Of course, one of his um, uh, favorite topics to talk about is how Scripture got its life precisely for this reason, because people kept it alive by appealing to it in ways that were very creative, midrashic might be the technical term. And I just find that fascinating because that hasn't stopped. But in, in antiquity, I mean, we haven't, we haven't mentioned this uh, uh, yet, but it's hard for modern Western people to connect with this concern to find texts to talk about child bereavement, because it's not something we experienced to the extent that they did. Yeah, so obviously the connection with the work that James Kugel does is absolutely right. And this is Midrash, and it's happening in Christian communities as much as it is happening in Jewish communities, sometimes to the same effect, sometimes in very different ways. The observation that we might not be seeing these as stories about the death of children because, frankly, childhood mortality in the United States, in the Western world more generally, is very, very limited. I think that's, I think that's right. Uh, in many regards, these things do not stick out to us. And other things that those who are tasked with expounding these texts, uh, whether they're ministers, whether they're authors, in many regards, their job is to see the things in them that will ultimately be useful to the community in the present as well as in the past. What I will say, however, is that parental bereavement remains a very, very difficult topic in a contemporary setting. And in many regards, it's, uh, uh, it's really a radioactive topic in the sense that uh, nobody finds resources to really speak about it. This is something that I've encountered uh, personally in conversation with people who've read my work or who've heard about my work. And uh, it's always deeply humbling to find that what, you know, in many regards I had intended for an academic audience ultimately ends up speaking to individuals who have lost children and in some ways becomes a resource for communities um, in thinking about this. So I want, to, uh, I want to challenge the assumption that these are no longer stories that we need in a contemporary Western setting, um, even if they are made useful for um, families who suffer miscarriages, uh, families who suffer the death of a child uh, at a much later point in the life of a child than, you know, um, we would experience in the ancient world. I think we continue to need these stories in our communities. Well, maybe... As Pete mentioned earlier, this idea of having these texts stay alive as we make use of them in our current crises and current contexts and current challenges. Maybe as we as we wrap up our time, I think maybe one final question would be, are there, not just for the, the death of children, but in general, in your work with these ancient Christian interpreters, what would be some some feedback or some some next steps for people as they try to make sense of an ancient text in light of 
the things that they're facing today. What, what are some maybe pointers or pieces of advice for people who, who really want the Bible to be relevant and to be applied and, and provide that comfort and guidance in some ways in these challenging times? How do they How do they do that? Uh, thanks, Jared. Uh, and I'm going to use your kind invitation here to plug someone who is absolutely not me, but is a friend uh, and a former mentor of mine, John Thompson, who is a brilliant scholar of all things Calvin, but has also, uh, I think at this point about 15 years ago, written a book titled uh, Reading the Bible with the Dead, uh, what you can learn from the history of exegesis uh, that you can't learn from exegesis itself. And, you know, I would be very happy for anybody to pick up my book or read my articles. In fact, I'd be happy to, you know, send you my page proofs. Please don't tell my publisher I just said that. (laughs) But in many regards, John is writing for an audience that might well be academic, but uh, is really writing for Christian communities uh, and is writing about the usefulness of the ways in which these stories have been deployed in those contexts. Mm-hmm. So, that's my plug. Okay. Nice. Well, and along those lines, where where else can people find more about you and your work? Where can we point people to, or, or books maybe, or articles or other things that you've written yeah, on? What's the name of your book that we've been sort of talking about here? <laughs> Yes, I should tell you. So, um, the book is titled Jephthah's Daughter, Sarah's Son, The Death of Children in Late Antiquity. It's published with the University of California Press. Uh, I think if you get it without a discount, it comes to about $27 for uh, a very pretty hardcover that you can have then sit on your uh, dining room table as a conversation starter. You can also find me, well, you can find me at Yale University's Department of Religious Studies, where I teach courses on this and a variety of random things, including uh, religion and science fiction uh, on a semi-regular basis. You can find me on Twitter, where it's at last name, first name, and... um I would, uh, uh, and you can, of course, always reach out to me by email. My contact info is on my department website. Uh, I would be delighted to hear from you. Excellent. We always we always appreciate that kind of invitation and um, appreciate your graciousness. So, thanks so much for just enlightening us with something that would, would have never crossed my mind to think about, and yet it has so many relevant, I think, applications beyond just this particular challenge, but just in how we read our Bibles. So, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jared. Thanks, Pete. This has been a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I just wanted to mention, if you aren't able to join us on Patreon, where we have all kinds of resources, you can also find more resources on YouTube. So, just go to YouTube and search for The Bible for Normal People. You'll get two to five-minute videos that give you some in-depth analysis, a little bit of insight on different biblical texts, uh, and again, help maybe learn a little more about what the Bible is and what we do with it. All right, see you there. We also want to give a shout-out to our producers group. Support us over on Patreon. They're the reason we're able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So, a big thanks to Jordan Wood, Paul Mark, Angela Smith, Rob Buckingham, Kendall Miller, Miles Dance, Lori Volkley, Marlon Wall, Matt Stein, and Kevin Rempel. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be a part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Thanks as always to our team, executive producer, Megan Kamick, audio engineer, Dave Gerhardt, creative director, Tessa Stoltz, marketing wizard, Reed Lively, transcriber and community champion, Stephanie Spade, and web developer, Nick Striegel. Thanks for listening.